It's Christmas in Sri Lanka. Karam Sheikh has stepped in to break up a fight, a good deed that he paid for with his life. Today, we journey into the family's pursuit for justice, from Rochdale to South Asia, through corruption and cover-ups, and with the help of Prince Charles. This is the Manchester Weekly from The Mill. Hello, I'm Daryl Morris. Welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly. Yoshi Herman, the editor of The Mill, Manchester's quality newspaper delivered by email, joins us as ever. Yoshi, hi. Hi. We're in an uh, unfamiliar environment here. We're in a new studio, yeah, which is very exciting. Love it. Apparently we're the first ones to record in it. We are. This is the first published podcast to come from these new studios at Media City, which is very exciting. They've got some very nice cameras and lights, which really bring out the colour in your There's eyes. Yoshi. Of cameras. More cameras than microphones. Yeah. <laughs> which is a bit disconcerting isn't it in a way <laughs> lots to come on this week's podcast last week Yoshi we travelled from Berry to Ireland this week we travel from Rochdale to Sri Lanka for a remarkable story yeah this is a remarkable tale Matt Baker is someone I've known for a few years now I actually first met him when I was doing a, a story before I started the mill and he was helping me out with that one and he called me over the Christmas break and said I had this unbelievable experience of representing this family in this quest for justice in Sri Lanka and I'd like to write about it there's a new documentary coming out it turned into one of our most popular weekend pieces it's a really interesting thing about how a British politician and his team campaigned in order to get a murder conviction in a case where there was political corruption involved in which there was sort of high stakes diplomacy I think it it would be interesting to hear from Matt about sort of what this tells us about how British foreign policy gets done and how British power can sort of be used abroad but also just the human story at the heart of it is, is quite remarkable so I'm really looking forward to that. Okay. We'll meet Matt shortly. Firstly let's get you briefed then everything you need to know in Greater Manchester this week. Yoshi we've heard so much about levelling up this is a central pillar of Boris Johnson's administration hasn't it but has in recent months started to sound like a, a bit of a hollow slogan. This week the government are trying to put some meat on the bones of that slogan and we've been hearing from the levelling up secretary Michael Gove. Uh, Yoshi what do we know? Well, so far, levelling up has meant pots of money administered from the government, from Whitehall, which have been doled out to different areas around the country to improve their high streets or to improve their stations, that kind of thing. It's all felt quite random. It's also felt very much like it's sort of down to the judgment of people in the centre rather than offering any people local power and local spending. This week's white paper is trying to put something a little bit more coherent and strategic together. So the idea is that the government is setting out 12 missions around productivity, education, transport, and it's sort of saying everything we do as a government needs to hit these goals, needs to conform to these missions. One interesting detail that popped out for me was there was a mention of negotiations for trailblazer devolution deals with the West Midlands of Greater Manchester to extend their powers. That will be music to the ears of Andy Burnham and Andy Street in the West Midlands. And that could mean that some of these extra powers that Greater Manchester has been asking for might come our way. But the fact that it's just negotiating Negotiations, rather than these are the powers we're handing over to those two city regions, I think will be pretty disappointing. The press release we got this week before the white paper said, by 2030, local public transport connectivity across the country will be significantly closer to the standards of London with improved services, simple fares and integrated ticketing. Again, you can sort of see why that's a disappointing thing to say. It's a good aspiration. It's certainly what we need. But significantly closer to the standards of London is, uh, you know, how do you measure that? That, that has 
hasn't been laid out very clearly yet. Wigan's MP Lisa Nandy, who's also the shadow levelling up secretary for Labour, has described what we've had so far from the government as, and I quote, a bunch of recycled money and repackaged announcements. She said, I think for most people around the country, this is deeply, deeply disappointing. So, you know, I think this is an important moment because people have been saying for, for a while, well, what is the actual game plan here? Other than giving out little pots of money, 10 million here, 20 million here, what's the sort of strategy here? That's what this announcement is about um, establishing. And there's a lot of politics in play, of course, here, Yoshi. We spoke, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago about that focus group in Bolton that took stock of how people were feeling sort of post-partygate. Mm. The Guardian ran another really interesting article last weekend, picking up on that in Tong Moor, and the sentiment remained about trust and decency and etc. all of those buzzwords you would expect. I guess, Yoshi, it's those people that Michael Gove and the government will be speaking to this week. Definitely. There will be people who voted for the Conservatives for the first time at the last election and who need to feel like that vote wasn't wasted, that Michael Gove cares about them, that Boris Johnson cares about them. And that's where these kind of 10 million for a station, 20 million for a high street are really useful because immediately or almost immediately they will see diggers and, you know, operating in their town centres. They will see things changing. They will realise that investment is going in. The problem is that the problems that levelling up is really supposed to be dealing with these very deep-seated gaps between the south and the north in particular they are going to take decades of not just high investment but very sustained very patient investment now that is a miles away from making someone in bolton feel a bit better about their town center so that they vote conservative again and i think really serious thinkers about this and i think mike emmerich who's written for the mail and and, and who advises lots of council and and, uh, and and regional authorities around the country he's written some interesting blogs about what sort of real leveling up would mean and i think in his book where he writes about the, you know, the return of cities, he really makes the point that London's success was based on extremely intensive investment for decades, 70s, 80s, 90s. New tubes were put in, stations were upgraded, massive infrastructure money went in there. And there is absolutely no sign that that kind of investment is going to result from this, um, from this white paper this week. Okay. Elsewhere, Yoshi this week, Manchester United footballer Mason Greenwood has been in the news, of course, released on bail after being arrested on suspicion of raping a woman this week. Yoshi, what more do we know? Well, Mason Greenwood is one of United's brightest stars, probably one of the brightest stars in the Premier League. And this has come totally out of the blue. It started when social media posts emerged online in which, you know, a woman was alleging that Mason Greenwood had effectively sexually assaulted her. Um, she was alleging that he had been abusive to her. And those videos and pictures that she, that she posted and then sort of deleted from Instagram were incredibly shocking. Very quickly, within hours, Mason Greenwood was arrested. Police have been questioning him about these things for the past few days. The club, Manchester United, say that he won't be playing or training while all of this is going on. And obviously, now that he has been arrested, it's technically an active case. And therefore, there's very little that we can realistically um, say about it. OK. And elsewhere in the city, there's been a big move in uh, the Manchester media scene, Yoshi. This is really significant, actually. Jen Williams of the Manchester Evening News is on the move. 
Yeah, she is. Jen Williams is a significant journalist in the North. She's the political editor and the investigations editor of the MEN. She's been there for 11 years. She's an extremely well-connected journalist. Her reporting in particular on the Greater Manchester Police and the um, issues they've had there has been has been really significant. I think, first of all, you know, her going to the FT to be their northern correspondent, which is, which is what's happening, it shows, I think, that the national newspapers are serious about the North in a way that they might not have been before. I mean, there was a very good correspondent in that job before Andy Bounds but for the FT to replace Andy with Jen who is you know an incredibly well connected journalist a real scoop getter someone who has the kind of experience and the contacts to really call out the BS from government or from local authorities when they're saying stuff that doesn't make sense you know that's a really good get for the FT. I think it's obviously also really bad news for the MEN because they've lost their biggest scoop getter. They've lost the person who has those contacts. And, you know, Jen Williams has been a big star for the MEN quite a few years now. And that newspaper will struggle to, to replace her in that job, I think. And the thing about this, Yoshi, is it's an example of a big national newspaper having a really big presence in Manchester, a big journalist in Manchester. Definitely. I mean, this kind of role, this northern correspondent role, obviously it doesn't just cover Manchester. So Jen Williams, like all the other northern correspondents, will be covering Newcastle and Liverpool and Sheffield and everywhere else. It's interesting, actually, in Manchester, because there are so many of these very good northern correspondents from The Guardian, from The Times, The Sunday Times, you know, the FT, Andy before now, Jen. I think actually the concentration of really good journalists operating in Manchester is actually pretty good. It's obviously nowhere near what it is in London, where you've got people from all over the world and and, and huge newsrooms for all the nationals. But I think the actual problem in the north is when you go outside of Manchester, if you go to some of these other cities, the concentration of professional journalists or experienced journalists is like much, much lower. So I think sometimes you get sort of a thing where stories within Greater Manchester or within an hour's car's journey of Greater Manchester actually get like pretty decent coverage in the nationals but not many national newspapers have the resources or or have um have made it a priority to have someone in the northeast for example and so actually i think like you know clearly we want way more journalists in in the north but i think there's a the next challenge would be to have these newspapers take newcastle seriously enough Mm. or or or, or take bits of yorkshire seriously enough Mm. that there are journalists there as well specifically in those areas well yeah definitely because you know we do have lots of these really good correspondents in manchester and i I think like you know there's been this move where the guardian have had more and more people in in the city i wonder whether there will be a a little bit of a a broadening out of that in the years ahead and a quick nod as well by the way yoshi to the the uk correspondent of a dutch broadsheet newspaper who rather than basing himself in london as the uk correspondent yeah. He's uh, best himself in Manchester as well. <laughs> yeah, I met I met him the other day, Niels. Uh, he's from Trau, uh, which is a sort of famous old broadsheet newspaper in Holland that came out of the resistance movement during the Second World War. He's a lovely guy. He's just moved from being their South Africa correspondent to being their UK correspondent. And his predecessor was based in London, doing loads of politics and Brexit stuff. And he said, you know, I've, I've decided to be in Manchester. It's much more central. I'll perceive the country are much better. He also said house prices are much lower. <laughs> rent, rent is much lower. He's a lovely guy, and he was in our office the other day so we'll follow his work well welcome to him yoshi for now thank you thank you matt baker helps people with their problems that was his job when he was a parliamentary advisor to a former rochdale mp he'd help people with potholes and roadworks and flooding and housing and bring in justice for the murder of an aid worker in sri lanka against the backdrop of corruption and cover-ups and with the help of prince charles and the former prime minister david cameron Matt joins us now. Matt, hi. Hi, good to meet you. You too. 
Why did you want to work for an MP? That's a good question. At the time, I was I was working as a, a journalist, and I was doing a, a lot of challenging stories around poverty and uh, deprivation and miscarriages of justice. I knew uh, some people were working in politics, and they seemed to be getting uh, better results than I was in terms of changing the law, achieving social justice, making things happen. And uh, I, I felt, I suppose, a little bit frustrated with journalism in that I didn't feel the stories that I was working on necessarily had the outcomes I wanted. So I wanted to work for an MP to deliver change and, and social justice. So I went to work in a, in a challenging area of, of North Manchester, Rochdale. And yeah, I really rolled my sleeves up and got stuck into it. And the key thing for me is that when people look at politics, I studied a master's in politics in Manchester and I, I knew a lot of people on the course who went into politics. They all had really good intentions and often, you know, a lot of them wanted to get stuck into these great campaigns. And nowadays, when I talk to people about politics, they think it's all the kind of yabu pantomime of Westminster and trolling on social media and just this sort of toxic level of public debate, which, you know, some of it unfortunately has, has come to that. But I still see politics as a real force for good where you can you know, pull big levers of change and make things happen and campaign for social justice and, and deliver some really good outcomes. And that's what I was motivated to do. And that's why I would I would always encourage young, bright, smart people who talk about it to go into politics, because I think it can generally be a real force for good. And a heck of a story landed on your desk, didn't it, Matt? Tell me about Kurum Sheikh. Well, Kurum was a, an international Red Cross worker from Rochdale, and he worked in incredibly challenging areas war zones really around the world he'd worked on the gaza strip he'd worked in ethiopia north korea he was on his way to cambodia he worked in really difficult areas and he specialized in prosthetics so people who'd, who'd lost their limbs in in war he would replace their limbs and help rehabilitate them and he, he would operate in incredibly difficult war zones really where most people would, would run a mile away he had taken a break from his job over the Christmas period of, of 2011 because he was told he had to for his mental health and he'd gone on holiday in Sri Lanka and uh, he'd been murdered in a bar there. He, he was uh, stabbed and shot several times and he, ne he never had a chance. And his parents came into the office to tell us this story and I, I immediately knew we had to do all we could to help. But what became apparent in the sort of coming weeks and months was this was a, a much bigger story than I'd first thought because the Sri Lankan media named the suspects, who were all identified straight away, and, and one of them was a local politician who was very close to the president of Sri Lanka. Gosh. So you're, you're in your office in Rochdale piecing this story together, acting on behalf of the family, and I mean, that then feels like an insurmountable challenge right to take on these suspects with such strong ties to the president as you say yeah i suppose two things were, were happening i mean on, on one hand i was starting to learn more about curum because i was talking to people and uh, who'd worked with him and i was seeing that there was plaques unveiled around the world i think the mayor of gaza created a special unit for him there was a plaque unveiled in dublin where, where he'd worked and there, subsequently a plaque was later unveiled and a special rehabilitation unit named in his, his honor at salford university and, and everyone was telling me what a great guy he was and i was realizing this was quite an inspirational young man and i felt very motivated to you know get justice for him he he, he did generally inspire me but on on the other hand i, I was realizing this was going to be extremely difficult because there were pictures of the lead suspects standing next to President uh, Rajapaska. 
And from early conversations with journalists, everyone told us this is not going to go anywhere. It's going to be covered up. He'll be protected. These were journalists in Sri Lanka telling you this or over here in the UK or both? There were journalists in Sri Lanka, actually. And I have to say, from the off, they were incredibly helpful. Right. Um, this became quite a symbolic case in Sri Lanka. Many of them had seen horrific injustices. Obviously, there'd been a civil war there and the, the Tamil population had suffered greatly. Um, lots of people had been killed. Disappearances were, were common. If you started to pour over Amnesty International reports of Sri Lanka, you could see that there were some terrible things going on there. And they they were really supportive. Um, they wanted to help us. So they did feed us quite a lot of really useful information. Uh, and I have to say they were a lot more helpful than, than journalists here in the UK. That was a different story here in the UK. Well, around about the same time, uh, not far after, there was a, everyone will know, because it came a huge story, um, Dale Grooming scandal. Uh, saw uh, several men jailed for horrific crimes against girls in Rochdale. They were all Asian men, and unfortunately, this started to stir real racial tensions at the time in the town and across the country, and it would later be exploited by the likes of Tommy Robinson and others. And the repercussions of that were, were that, unfortunately, and this was some years before Black Lives Matter, that many journalists somehow didn't feel they could properly give this story justice because he you know that we were talking about a young asian man from rochdale and i found that incredibly sad and upsetting and given this the story I'd re i really felt strongly at the time that he should have been on the front pages of all the papers of course we did get some good coverage but i had to really go out of my way to make it happen i had to fly to moscow to get an interview with his girlfriend to get in the times and it, it, it was an uphill struggle and at the same time, journalists in Sri Lanka were bending over backwards to help us. I remember seeing um, a cartoon in one of the papers. I think it said something like, you know, Britain's fighting for justice. And a, a, a local person was walking past and the comment was, how do you think we feel? And although they wanted us to, to succeed, you know, I think there was just a, a real strong sort of sense of anger at the, the injustices they experienced mm. on a day to day basis. I think they liked the fact that we were willing to visit and throw everything at it. And they admired that kind of determination and they were willing to help in any way, but they did say all along it's unlikely to go anywhere. Take us into that process then, Matt, as you head to Sri Lanka. Paint a picture of some of those hurdles that you were coming up against as you were trying to push this case along. Well, when we were talking, we met quite early on with politicians and they were very quick to play it down and say that um, the justice system takes a long time to to happen here and uh, things can take uh, up to 10 years and uh, i think the permanent secretary for the ministry of justice told us that um, they were unable to take foreign witness statements and we knew there was lots of foreign witnesses these were like tourists on holiday in the hotel at the time who'd, who'd seen this horrific crime and they didn't want to take those statements because they wanted to rely on local people who'd be easily intimidated and wouldn't come to court they repainted the hotel, changed the name as though it never happened. You changed the name of the hotel? Yeah. <laughs> it was almost as though they wanted to just erase it. So as to detach themselves from yeah, documents. And, and, and when it originally happened, the BBC correspondent for Sri Lanka had a phone call from the chair of tourism who said, please don't report this, it will be bad for tourism here. When the case did eventually happen, after many months and a huge, many years and a huge struggle, 
They even tried to get rid of the judge by promoting her to take her off the case to replace her with a government stooge. Thankfully, she she didn't and continued the case. But it it was a really difficult process from start to finish. There was a sense that uh, they did not want this to go anywhere. And we we know from from the the documentary that Curran was featured in that lots of other Brits who've who've had um, close relatives and loved ones die abroad have faced an almost impossible struggle to get justice. So it is is extremely hard. And so that unease in Sri Lanka and that desire to not lose face to not dent their sort of tourism and their reputation was your way in that was what you used to push that story along well we realized that politics was just almost impossible to understand over there at the time this was happening, there was a British politician, Chris Hune, who was who would be jailed for lying over a traffic offence and speeding points. Well, over in Sri Lanka, politicians were regularly beating people up, tying them to trees. There was gunfights between rival political parties. It was unbelievable. So it was impossible to kind of understand that or even to start to fathom how you can make any headway in that cauldron of insanity. But we did know two things. We knew that tourism is extremely important to Sri Lanka. At the time, I think British Airways had just named Sri Lanka as its number one destination, which we lobbied them very hard again on that front and said it was a terrible decision. Um, we also knew that the Commonwealth Heads of Government Summit was due to take place in Colombo in 2013. President Rajapaska would be chairing that and he wanted to look good in front of the world. So this was a this was a big opportunity to really kind of shine a spotlight on their human rights record and the, the way that they dealt with this case and also to really push hard to stop tourists going to Sri Lanka because that would hurt them financially and it would hurt the, the, the jobs market there because they needed tourism desperately and they were trying to portray this image of Sri Lanka being this sort of tropical paradise where you could have this incredible holiday and they didn't want stories like this um, being exposed at all. And so I guess you spotted an opportunity to cause as much noise as you possibly can that I guess in your thinking from your sort of strategic point of view would encourage them to get it sorted and dealt with absolutely on campaigns like this you have to collaborate you have to pull as many levers as you can and you have to kind of get as many allies and supporters to to help you Um, we were really fortunate that we had lots of good advocates here Um, we were able to make a noise we were able to get the Sri Lankan media on our side we were able to get some Sri Lankan politicians and some other key figures over there to support us and we were able to make it a cross-party issue here in the UK the big thing which gave us a breakthrough was to to secure the support of the British Prime Minister at the time David Cameron and the Foreign Office Minister Alistair Burt, who, who's originally from Bury, so he wasn't too far away from, from Rochdale and he, he, he knew the area well and he was very supportive and met the family and um, we, we were able to get support from MPs across all parties. My constituent Kurum Sheikh was brutally murdered and his girlfriend gang raped whilst on holiday in Sri Lanka nearly two years ago. Justice continues to be denied and the key suspect is a close ally of the Sri Lankan president. Is the Prime Minister comfortable meeting this president at the Commonwealth Heads of Government Summit next month and what will he say to him? Well, I'm grateful for the Honourable Gentleman's question. I think it is right for the British Prime Minister to go to the Commonwealth Conference because we're big believers in the Commonwealth and making that organisation work well and indeed work for us. But I think it's right in going to the Commonwealth Conference we should not hold back in being very clear about those aspects of the human rights record in Sri Lanka that we're not happy with. And if he gives me the details of that case, I will make sure that along with other cases and along with other arguments, those points are properly made. Of course, those are points you can't make if you don't go. 
that was really helpful to get the government to promise to bat very hard for us. I mean, and we even got um, Prince Charles to support us as well. One of the, I suppose, the standout moments was when we were in a press conference in Sri Lanka and the room was full of people. I can remember these almost like audible gasps when we said that there was a, a likelihood that, that the Queen would not attend this year's Chogham for the first time in 40 years. Sorry, Chogham is the acronym, Commonwealth Heads of Government Meeting. Yeah. And she didn't actually. And it was because of her age, really. But uh, we intimated that it was because of their human rights record. I felt there was a kind of sense that the country was being embarrassed by this and it was forced into action. And David Cameron eventually wrote to us and said that he'd raised the case very and he underlined it on the letter directly with the president. And so you did get a trial. We got a trial. It was uh, a long-running trial, but uh, you know, all credit to Kurum's brother Nasser, who was a remarkable doughty campaigner in all of this. I mean, when we first sat down with him, I did say to him, "Nasser, you're going to go through a real ordeal if you push this to the end, because you're going to have to do endless interviews. You're going to have to campaign on this around the clock." And he he was willing to do that. And I watched him almost change and transform overnight. You know, becoming almost this sort of well, from this quite shy and polite young NHS worker into becoming a sort of formidable campaigner and he, he stuck at it and attended every day of the trial and it must have been incredibly hard for him to, to see uh, his brother's killer mm. in the court and they eventually got justice and the men were sentenced for 20 years. Six persons, including the chairman of the Tangal Pradesh Sabha, Sampa Chandra Pushpa Vidana Patirana, were indicted on 17 charges for the murder of British national Kuram Sheikh and the gang rape of his Russian national girlfriend, Victoria Alexandrovna. The sentence was handed down for the 17 charges following 33 hearings at the High Court. The first four defendants, including Vidana Patirona, were found guilty of culpable homicide and sentenced 20 years rigorous imprisonment. How did that moment feel for you? I felt very sad throughout the case and I still know the Sheikhs now for their loss. And one of the things when you work in politics, and I suppose in journalism as well, and when you do these kind of stories, you, you really see the the depth of, of human grief and sadness that miscarriages of justice, murder, death, all of this stuff causes. Closure for us is probably never going to happen. What's very important, I think, you know, um, the, the comments brought out about, um, you know, um, rebuilding, uh, closure, moving on with your life, etc., that, that doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen overnight, and it doesn't happen just because a verdict's been given. I know for a fact, because I've seen my parents, I've seen my own life tra being transformed over the past two and a half years. What it really gives for me, uh, certainly, is that element of peace of the jigsaw. I knew that nothing was going to sort that, but I felt happy that I'd perhaps allowed his brother and his family to sleep a little bit easier at night. But I just felt pleased that we'd overcome so many odds and I suppose you know looking back at it now I think it's a remarkable campaign from an office in uh, Rochdale without any kind of help of big public affairs agencies or any lobbyists you know it was a very much a grassroots campaign we were able to win over national and international media um, politicians across the globe the royal family and the prime minister and take it to a major commonwealth summit and force the president into action and and, and getting a trial and subsequently winning that and seeing a, a politician who had a history of escaping crimes and acting with impunity getting him ultimately jailed then i do think that was a good achievement mm. This is politics, isn't it? This is what it's about. For all of the fraughtness and for all of the back and forth and all of the mudslinging and all of the, the, the bitterness of which we've seen a huge amount in recent years, recent weeks, recent days, this is what politics is about. 
It is because, um, you know, one of the things I've realised is justice never happens automatically. It has to be fought for and it has to be won. And there is, you know, lots of great public servants involved in that fight for justice, but it often takes a campaign really to to sort of, you know, force those actors into acting. Yeah, politics can be a great force for good. People do go to see their MP when they're in trouble or they need help. And their MP should be able to help them and should do everything they can to deliver justice and, and to make things like this happen. Hmm. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Daryl. Nice to talk to you. You can read Matt's piece, Deeply Personal Reflections on his part of that story, manchestermill.co.uk. OK, Yoshi, uh, what's in the pipeline, my friend? Take us into the Mill newsroom. Well, if I take you into the Mill newsroom, you'll be tripping over print copies of our <laughs> special edition. We've still got some lying around, so if any Mill members who are listening would like a, a copy, we've still got a few lying around in the office. We are doing a little bit of work on an interesting story. You might remember a few months ago there was this focus on drink spikings, particularly when students came back to the city. There was also a bit of a national story about whether there was a new type of spiking with Mm. needles. Something we're looking at is how well do venues in Manchester prevent that kind of thing? What are they doing? Are they holding on to the CCTV in the right way and that kind of thing? So we're doing a little bit of digging in that area. There might be an interesting story coming up on that in the next few weeks. And yeah, we've got some really interesting stuff coming up. This week we had a really interesting story by Jack Dalhanty for Mill members about Care for Calais, which is a project that um, helps out with with refugees and and, and gets them clothing and food and that kind of thing. He went down to one of their centres and he saw like an interesting contrast between the volunteers who are helping out and then these people who are working their kind of criminal community service stuff, you know, they're, they're doing their, their mandated work and they were doing some of the, the work at this centre as well. So that I, he, he found an interesting contrast there and he's written a really nice piece. So uh, Mill members, that's in your inbox. And um, yeah, do join the Mill to read that kind of thing every week. Lovely. And a nod, please. What's going on in Greater Manchester, Yoshi, that we should be checking out? Well, something that I really want to check out is this new, well, not new, but renovated Manchester Jewish Museum, um, which has been completely done up. Apparently, it's absolutely amazing. Coming up on Wednesday, so 9th of February, they've got the Jewish Culture Club, which is a sort of group for anyone who wants to explore contemporary forms of Jewish culture, books, TV, film, fashion, that kind of thing. So that looks like a really cool event, and I need to get myself down to that Jewish museum. Lovely. And that's a Cheaton Hill Road, I think, isn't it, mm. in Manchester? And not far from there, around the corner, is Strangeways Prison. This weekend, they have a an open day kind of thing. They're, they're doing free tours around the prison, which which is a really fascinating part of the Manchester landscape, isn't it? It's obviously housed some iconic prisoners, some of the very worst of humanity, and uh, Ian Brady and Harold Shipman, all the way through to Ian Brown, and the Rolling Stones, who uh, spent some time there after getting in a strop on an aeroplane back in the, I think that was back in the 80s, back in the uh, 90s, I think, late 90s. Mm. Really fascinating place. I used to live right by Strangeways in a flat in the Green Quarter that overlooked the place and you could see right into the building. Wow. And I had a pair of binoculars, of course, and lost several hours to watching the goings-on in and around Strangeways, including one of the riots back in 2016, you remember, mm. when a guy got up on the roof and Granada Reports came to the flat to film uh, wow. the guy on the roof from our flat. So it's been a, a source of great fascination to me over the years. If you fancy a look around this Saturday, you can get tickets online 
and they'll take you around and tell you some of the stories of the place. Yoshi, for now, thank you. Thanks to Matt as well. And if you've enjoyed this, you know what to do. Hit like, follow or subscribe. You'll get a new edition of the Manchester Weekly Podcast in your feed every week. And don't forget all of this and more at the Mill newsletter, full of news and events and deep dives into stories. ManchesterMill.co.uk is where you subscribe. 